inerrant, certain and sure word of the living God. I want to begin our study by asking a question. How do you think God looks on the unity of his people? How do you think God looks on the unity of his people? If fellow believers in Christ are communing together in a unified community that is visible and real, what do you think God would say about this? Well, the answer to this question is really not hard to find. In fact, all we have to do is turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is a psalm about the unity of God's people, and it proclaims thus, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What does God think about his people living together in unity? In this short, beautiful psalm, we're given an inspired picture that, should, that, that we as the church should frankly never forget. First of all, unity is a gift from God. This truth is what lies behind the image of the anointing oil running down Aaron's head and beard. This type of oil was given at God's direction in his way with his authority and any blessing it conferred was all from God. Thus with unity among God's people it is a gift of his grace given to his people who otherwise would be divided because of sin. Second of all unity is for both the small and great. This truth is captured by the image of the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. Hermon was the highest mountain in Israel. And it became proverbial to speak of its dew falling on its lofty reaches. But in this psalm, the dew of Hermon falls on the mountains of Zion, which were not high at all in comparison. The point then of this picture as it relates to unity is that this blessing is given to all the people of God, no matter their stature, position, or place in the world. Third of all, the blessing of unity flows from one person to another. It flows from one person to another. We see this truth in the image of the anointing oil running down on the collar of Aaron's robes. This picture indicates the flow of blessing given to Aaron by God was to proceed to all others he came in contact with. In fact, the oil used to anoint him was typically blended with myrrh, cinnamon, cane, and cassia. Thus, there was a rich and precious fragrance that would fill the air wherever Aaron proceeded under this anointing. Pertaining to unity then, when one believer is pursuing such a holy community among the brethren, that pursuit tends to be a blessing to those who come in contact with it. Finally, Psalm 133 teaches that unity is a foretaste of heaven. It is a foretaste of heaven. This is what the very last verse in this psalm is telling us. 
For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Commenting on this truth, James Montgomery Boyce said, Some things are good for us, but not pleasant. Other things are pleasant, but not good. But the unity we have as God's people is both good and pleasant. It is even a bit of heaven now. So what then does God think about unity among his people? It is good and pleasant to the Lord because it's his gift that he expects to be guarded and preserved by his people as they pursue one another in fellowship. Now, with this in mind, I want to turn your attention this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. From a larger context in Ephesians, the first three chapters centered mainly on the grand truth of what God has done to save us in Christ. But beginning in chapter 4, Paul the Apostle enters on the outworking of that saving grace in daily life. And the first step God directs us to take is in the matter of keeping Christian unity. In fact, this theme covers directly the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. In this passage, Paul labors to unpack the truth that because we are one in Christ, which was his subject back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, that oneness or unity we have in Christ must be made visible for all the world to see. But the unity that should be seen in the church is not a carnal or worldly kind of unity. It's not a unity produced by the flesh. It's spiritual and therefore it's Christian. Hence the reason for my very deliberate title to this message, Keeping Christian Unity. There's no other unity that works in the church because there's no other unity that honors Christ but that which is conformed to his will and purpose, namely Christian unity. Now, to begin this study on keeping Christian unity, I want us to consider verses 1 through 6 here in Ephesians chapter 4. And from this passage, I want us to see three principal truths. First, the character that keeps Christian unity. Second, the cause that creates Christian unity. And third, the charge to keep Christian unity. To begin with then, let's look first at the character that keeps Christian unity. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The opening words here in verse 1 signal that Paul is now beginning to draw a deduction from everything he has written from the first 56 verses of this letter. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. The sense and effect of these words are in this. In light of all I have just written concerning God's grace in saving you and uniting you together in Christ, I strongly exhort you now to conduct the whole of your life in this peculiar way. And in what way is Paul urging us as the church to live? Well, he says, 
I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What we have here in verse 1 is the overarching theme for the last three chapters of Ephesians. It is to have a walk that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called by God in Christ. Everything that will proceed from this imperative will be to explain what this worthy walk is and how it must proceed in practice from keeping Christian unity to keeping Christian purity to keeping a Christian family to keeping the Christian armor in the face of the spiritual war we struggle with each and every day. Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6 is an exposition, therefore, of what it means to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Now, we should notice before we leave verse 1 here, at least two important terms, okay? Two important terms we need to underscore. They're the terms worthy and the term calling. The term translated worthy is the Greek adjective axios, which carries the basic meaning of that which balances the scales. That which balances the scales. That is, the weight on one side always equals the weight on the other. But here, in the context of Ephesians 4 and verse 1, this word is connected to the term calling. Calling, which is a theological term incorporating everything Paul has just written pertaining to God's saving and sovereign call of us in Jesus Christ. So to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called is to live, it is to live in such a way that our life gives equal weight to what God has done by calling us to himself in salvation. We are to be like the man who said, Christ has done so much for me, the rest of my life is a P.S., a postscript to his great work. So then as Christians, our lives in the whole are to be a constant testimony to God's calling in salvation. Yet, this is not just a testimony on the personal, individual level, but it's also a testimony to God's saving call on the collective level as the church. When the world looks into a local church, like here at Providence, a gathered assembly of professing Christians, they should see a community of people whose way of life gives equal weight to the truth and claim of what God has done in saving them. And where this begins in Ephesians chapter 4 is with this call to keep Christian unity. Since God has united us together in Christ as one new humanity, the way we live together as the church should give equal weight to that unity which is true of us because of our union with Christ. But what does this look like in practice? This is where Paul begins his large exposition on keeping Christian unity. He starts by unfolding the character, the character that keeps Christian unity. Looking at verse 2, we see four virtues in Christian character that always work together in keeping Christian unity. They are humility, 
gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. In the first place, for genuine Christian unity to be visible in the local church, there must be humility in how we relate to each other as God's people. This word in the original Greek can be defined as lowly thinking or having a lowliness of mind. As a Christian, humility is a grace of the Holy Spirit that is manifested first by not thinking more highly of ourselves than we should think, and second, by esteeming others as more important than ourselves, whereby we put the interest of others before our own. Needless to say, there will be no unity among Christians where humility is absent. As John R. W. Stott put it, he said, humility is essential to unity. Pride lurks behind all discord while the greatest single secret of concord is humility. But to repeat myself, humility is a grace of the Holy Spirit. Hence, to relate to each other with humility cannot be achieved by our own carnal efforts. For one thing, there is nothing more instinctive for all of us than our own pride. Without any effort, you realize it takes no grace to be prideful. None whatsoever. Without any effort, we, we always like to think of ourselves as better than others. That's just natural. Due to our remaining sin, we, we naturally pitch ourselves in a light where our interests, our wants, our needs come first. That is very natural. That is very instinctive. It's also very sinful. Sinful. But by God's grace, our pride can be put to death. It can be put to death. And this is done by making all strides to walk in humility. This begins, first of all, with a proper self-awareness. A proper self-awareness, where we become conscious of our own unworthiness. We see ourselves as we really are in the light of God's word, deserving nothing but hell. Because of our sin. It is only God's grace in Christ that has made the difference. That's it. It's what Paul the Apostle, what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. I am what I am by the grace of God. Period. But this is where we have to think and live. You understand? This is where we have to think and live. From, this, is, this is from where we relate to others. So again, like Paul, we see ourselves as the chief of sinners. And then on the other side of the same coin, as it were, we see ourselves as less than the least of all the saints. Remember, that's what Paul said of himself. He says, I'm the chief of sinners but I'm less than the least of all the saints. That is a proper self-awareness for a Christian. Second of all, to walk in humility involves an overwhelming God-awareness. 
Like Isaiah, we see God thrice holy, high and lifted up with perpetual praise given to his majesty as the Lord whose glory fills all the earth. And with such a stupendous vision of God before us, we immediately know our place and we feel our smallness. And indeed, we also see our sinfulness as Isaiah did. You see, it's in our pride. Now listen to this. This is so important. It's in our pride that we're always comparing ourselves with other people. That's in our pride. We do that all the time. But it's in the grace of humility that we look at ourselves from only one perspective. And that is in comparison to God. And then like Job, we say to the Lord, I know that you, Lord, can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, here was Job's response, therefore I despise myself. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the God awareness involved in the grace of humility. And it's when we're walking in this humility that Christian unity is preserved. It's kept. It's maintained. In the second place, for genuine Christian unity to be visible in the local church, there also must be the grace of gentleness. The grace of gentleness. This word can also be translated as meekness. And like humility, this too is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And thereby it is what the Holy Spirit grows in us as God's people. Now, when it comes to keeping Christian unity gentleness or meekness is absolutely mandatory. Now, why is that? It's because in meekness, in meekness, we deny the assertion of our personal rights, turning the other cheek when we're personally insulted. Meekness guards us from giving in to bitter rage where retaliation and revenge and a vindictive spirit would absolutely consume us. With meekness, there is always the willingness and readiness to forgive. This grace of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not weakness. Rather, meekness is power under control. Quoting again from John R. W. Stott, he wrote, It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. The meek man or woman thinks as little of their personal claims as the humble man or woman of their personal merits. That's the difference between those two graces. In the third place, for genuine Christian unity, unity to be visible in the local church, there must be 
there must be the grace of patience. There must be the grace of patience. This term is the translation of the Greek word macrothumia. Macrothumia, which can be better understood as long-suffering. Long-suffering. That, that is actually a more accurate translation of this term, macrothumia. Rather than just patience, it's really long-suffering. And again, like humility and gentleness, patience or long-suffering is a grace of the Holy Spirit that is worked in and through the character of a Christian. Now, listen carefully to this next statement. The distinctive quality of this grace is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again and yet not be upset or angry. And at this point, everybody is wondering, am I saved or not? Oh, that's convicting. That's convicting. You see, this is why macrothemia can also be understood, listen, as long-tempered. Long-tempered. It is the grace to be very, very molasses slow to anger in spite of how aggravating and irritating someone may be. Thus, in building Christian unity and keeping Christian unity, listen, we have to make allowances for people's shortcomings. We have to. We have to overlook many faults. And in some cases, in some cases, we even have to overlook sins. In some cases. And in this light... I want you to just to think for a moment how our Lord Jesus treats us and with what patience, with what long-suffering, infinite long-suffering, he is always showing by not handling each of us as our sins deserve. This is the same grace we have to give to each other if Christian unity will be evident. We have to be long-tempered. We have to suffer long with others. We have to. In the fourth place, for genuine Christian unity to be visible in the local church, there must be the grace of bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. This, this, grace, this graceful virtue is another manifestation of the Spirit's fruit, and it is actually the practical expression of macrothemia, patience. The phrase bearing with one another indicates having patience with someone till the provocation is past. This means that, that in the midst of tensions and conflicts, we are enduring and thereby putting up with the weaknesses and failures of others. We're, we're bearing with them. We are bearing with them. 
But, let me make this clear. Such endurance and toleration is not carried out begrudgingly. You're not bearing with them with clenched fists and gnashing teeth. No, 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 no. That's not what it says. That's not what the text says. We bear with them in what? Love. It's always in love. And this love, of course, is hagape. It is hagape love. It is unqualified and unselfish love that willingly gives to others whether it receives in return or not. And you know good and well that takes grace. That takes grace. When you give and there is no return. You can't do that on your own. You don't have the power to do that on your own. That takes the grace of God to do. That is why this agape love, it is an unconquerable benevolence. It is, as one writer says, an invincible goodness. And it is this grace of the Holy Spirit that turns our forbearance of others into a service that seeks nothing but their welfare and good for the community as a whole. So here are the building blocks, if you will, in Christian character that promotes true Christian unity in the most tangible of ways. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Beloved, listen to me. Where these graces are absent, where these, where these graces are not there, no eternal structure of unity can stand. It will not. It will not last. It will not stand. All we will see in a local church without these graces at work will be pride and arrogance and backbiting and sowing discord and vindictiveness and intolerance and hatefulness. And sadly and tragically, there are plenty of local churches that are like that. Tragically. But when these graces of the Spirit are growing, when they are maturing in the character of fellow Christians, then we can have a strong hope and assurance that a visible unity can, in, can actually be maintained. It can be kept. It can be guarded. Because this is the character. This is the character that keeps Christian unity. It does not grieve the spirit, does not quench the spirit, but it keeps and maintains true Christian unity. 
But moving to our next major point, let's consider now from the, from the character, let's now look at the cause. The cause that creates Christian unity. Look at me in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What this passage teaches us is that true Christian unity arises from the unity we see in the eternal living God. In other words, the perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit actually creates and gives birth to the unity that is present and should thereby be visible among fellow Christians. This is the principal doctrine revealed in this passage as it connects to the call for the church to preserve unity. Now, how do we know this? How do we know what I've just explained? Well, three out of the seven unities in these verses point to the three persons of the triune Godhead. One spirit, one Lord who is Christ, and one God and Father of all. So three out of the seven unities point to the three persons in the triune Godhead, while, while the remaining four unities point to our Christian experience in relation to each person in the eternal triune Godhead. First of all, we see there is one body because there's only one spirit. The church is the one body, that is the body of Christ. And the unity of the church as the one body of Christ is due to the one Holy Spirit who has placed us into this one body and indwells us, giving us new life. Second of all, there is one hope belonging to our Christian calling, one faith and one baptism because there is only one Lord who is Jesus Christ our Savior. It is Jesus Christ our Lord, therefore, in whom we have believed, into whom we have been baptized, and for whose coming we wait with expectant hope. Third of all, there is one Christian family embracing us all because there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, summing up, all of this, John R. W. Stott added these very, very helpful layers. Listen closely to what he wrote here. The one Father creates the one family. The one Lord Jesus creates the one faith in baptism. The one Spirit creates the one body. Indeed, we can go further. We must assert that there can be only one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope, and baptism, and only one Christian body because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God indestructible? Then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church, therefore, is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Wow. 
Hmm. So, with this latter claim made by Stott as to the impossibility of splitting the church compared to the impossibility of splitting the Godhead, one has to ask the question, is he claiming too much? While we certainly agree, agree wholeheartedly, that it is impossible to destroy or split the eternal Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet can we really connect this same impossibility to the church? Well, I believe that is a very fair question. And I believe it's a fair question since we have all seen plenty of local churches do what? Split, right? But what John R. W. Stott is claiming, and listen closely, what he's claiming is not the indestructibility of a local visible church, okay, like Providence Reformed Baptist Church. Let's turn to Stott again to consider how he answers this because his answer is actually going to set us up for our final major point in this exposition of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Stott makes this observation. Listen very closely. He says, how then can the evident phenomenon of the disunity of the church be reconciled with the biblical insistence on the indestructibility of its unity? At this point, a necessary distinction needs to be drawn. It is not just between the visible and the invisible church. It is between the church's unity as an invisible reality present to the mind of God who says to himself, I have only one church. And the church's disunity as a visible appearance which contradicts the, the invisible reality causing us to say to ourselves, there are hundreds of separated and competing churches. We are one for God says so. Yet outwardly and visibly, we belong to different churches and different traditions. So then based on what Stott is claiming, and I, I do believe what he's saying is biblical, what we see physically and outwardly is a very real disunity and thereby a fragile body of believers who need to work very hard at keeping unity. But to the Lord our God, to the Lord our God, he not only sees our present state of imperfection, but he already sees us all perfected in glory, bearing the same indestructible unity that has always been the indestructible nature of the eternal triune Godhead. This is why we're told here in our text that there's only one, one what? Body. One body. There's only one body. That's what God sees. That's what, now, now we're, we're, we're having a hard time seeing that from where we sit. But in the mind of God and to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, only one body. One hope, one faith, one baptism that makes up the one eternal family of God. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, is giving us then, listen, it's giving us the eternal perspective on Christian unity to show us the cause that creates it. The cause that creates it. But living as we do on this side of glory where remaining sin still gives us so much grief as Christians, the, the unity that we have in Christ is a unity that we must make every effort to preserve tangibly, practically, as we gather, as we meet together on this side of glory. And this truth leads us to our last major point, and that is the charge to keep Christian unity. The charge to keep Christian unity. Look with me at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What we must first notice about this exhortation is that we're being called to maintain a unity that has already been created. To maintain a unity that's already been created. And namely, by the Holy Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. So, so Paul describes the Christian unity as the unity of the Spirit. So this is the Spirit's unity. As a possessive genitive. It's the Spirit's unity. It's not man's unity. So it's not the unity that we create. It's the, uni it's the unity that is created. Created by God. Secondly, since Christian unity is not what Christians create, then what is our responsibility as it pertains to this unity? We are to be eager to, <clears throat> eager to maintain it. Eager to maintain it. This means that, that we are to spare no effort, but with all zeal guard and keep the unity created by the Spirit that every Christian shares in because of our union with Christ. But how do we keep the unity created by the Spirit? What does verse 3 say? We do so in the bond of peace. We do so in the bond of peace. That is, by the peace that binds us together, we maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the peace that binds us together as the church is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're told in Ephesians 2.14, Christ is our peace who has made us one. Christ is our peace who has made us one. So in Christ... We make every effort, we make every effort to keep the unity we already have by the Holy Spirit. And how is this done very practically? How is this done very tangibly? It is by walking together with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is how every local church by God's grace and power, preserves visibly in concrete relationships 
the Christian unity we already share in Christ by the Spirit. Now, in closing our study of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I want us to return to the question which opened up this sermon as a whole. How do you think God looks on the unity of his people? We answered this question by turning to Psalm 133 where the strong affirmation was made, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So what does God think about the unity of his people? He calls it good and pleasant. But now we must add Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6 in answer to our leading question. <clears throat> what does God think about the unity of his people? Listen, he not only calls it good and pleasant, but the Lord also calls us as his church to fervently, eagerly, zealously guard and keep the unity he has created and gives us as his people. In other words, keeping Christian unity should never be something that we as Christians are indifferent about, that we're apathetic about. Furthermore, keeping Christian unity should never be something that we treat as, well, someone else's responsibility. This is not a calling of God that we can just pass on to another Christian and, 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 and dare to say, well, you know, I mean, keeping Christian unity, that's just not my calling. That's brother so-and-so's calling. They're very gifted at it. But that's not my calling. No. No, when it comes to the unity of God's people, keeping and preserving this unity visibly is the responsibility and calling of every single Christian, period. Every single Christian. No believer is exempt from this calling. No Christian is. And according to Ephesians chapter, chapter 4, 1 through 6, this means, therefore, that, that actively treating one another with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with, with one another in love is not, listen, this is not just the character one should expect to see in pastors. It's the character we should see in every Christian because keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is what God expects to see in all, in all his children pursuing together. So then we must ask ourselves, in light of Ephesians Chapter 4, 1 through 6. Are we actively pursuing the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? That is what this text forces us to ask. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? Can, can we say that we're walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called when it comes to keeping Christian unity? And to answer this question calls us then to examine our character in the light of what God has revealed that it takes to maintain the Spirit's unity in the bond of peace. It takes humility. It takes patience. It takes meekness. It takes forbearing love. That's what it takes. Now, I'm very certain 
that if we're all honest with ourselves and with each other, we would have to admit that these graces of the Spirit, these graces of the Spirit are graces that need greater growth, greater maturity in all of us. If we're going to be really honest, let me say it another way. None of us have arrived. None of us have arrived. None of us can claim perfection in any of these graces. And we all know this. If we're being truly honest, we all know this. But knowing our imperfections in these graces does not relieve us from the responsibility we have to pursue them with all diligence in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I bring this study to an end by calling on all of us to take to heart, take to heart in active pursuit, the worthy walk God has commanded his church to have when it comes to eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We need to grow in humility. We all do. We all do. Because we all have a problem with pride, every one of us. It's greater, it's lesser in many different respects, but it's there, it's there in all of us. We all have a problem with pride. We need to grow in greater humility. We need to grow in gentleness, in meekness. We need to learn what Jesus means when he says, turn the other cheek which is something I'll be teaching on in a few weeks on Wednesday night because that's one of those verses that a lot of Christians don't get, don't understand, and they misinterpret and they misapply. We also need to grow in patience, like I need to even say that. We all know that one far too well. Far too well. I will refresh you on, on something about that in 1 Corinthians 13, which, as you many of you know, is a chapter that I have told you is one that I have read regularly and almost daily for the last several years. Definitely have hidden it well in my heart and continue to have it before me. But in 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 4, Paul writes and says that love is patient. And that word patient is, is our Greek word makrothumia. It's that word. It's the word he uses in Ephesians 4. So love is long-suffering, which means the King James got it right. That's how they translate it. Love is long-suffering. Okay, so one up for the KJV. We're good. Love is patient, all right? But then notice, notice what love is not, okay? This is in direct correlation with love is patient. So you drop down to, you go to the next, to verse 5. He says, it does not insist on its own way. And then look at this. It is not irritable. 
It is not irritable. Uh, let me give you another translation of that. It's not easily provoked. If you're walking in love, then you're walking in the grace of suffering along with others, which means that you will not be easily provoked by what they may do or not do. So if you really want to test yourselves to say, hmm, how well am I growing in patience? Well, ask yourself this. How quickly or not quickly do I react in anger to, to my, my spouse or children or to my siblings or to my parents or, you know, or my fellow Christians right here? How quickly or not quickly do I react in anger? Because if we are easily provoked by others, then with that person or those people, whoever they may be, we're not being patient. Which also means we're not walking in love toward them. See, it all just, it all goes together. That's, that's hard. That's tough. That is very tough. But also, we need to grow in forbearing love, which just ties in with what I was just saying from 1 Corinthians 13. We need to grow in forbearing love. Now, aren't you glad that the Word of God commands us to bear with each other? Which is, you know, another way of, of, another way of translating that is put up with each other. You know? I mean, if we're going to get real honest, we've got a lot to put up with with each other. Okay? Because we're not on the side of perfection yet. So there's a lot of things about each other. And I'm not talking just about sins. I mean, they can be just idiosyncrasies. They can be, you know, things about each other's natural personalities that, you know, just say, man, that just gets under my skin. That gets on my nerves. But yet the Lord comes back and says, bear with them in love. Bear with them in love. And why would that be there? Because it's so hard to do. This is not natural to me. What's natural is I want to react. I want to jump all over them. You know, I just, instead of patiently, patiently bearing with them. What's so encouraging about this growth that we're talking about is that God will never leave it to ourselves to make it happen. God is not going to leave you all by yourself and say, okay, do it. Go ahead, do it. In other words, this is not moralism. You just got to try hard and do better. That's not what this is. This is not moralism. God is not leaving us to ourselves to make it happen. As we are striving to work it out, we do so by what he, the Lord, is already doing by working in us 
the power to be what he's called us to be. Therefore, keeping Christian unity, maintaining this, guarding this as the church, it can only be accomplished, it can only happen by the grace of God. You and I don't do this on our own. You're not just saved by grace. You live by grace. The same power, the same power that rescued your soul from everlasting darkness is the same power you need every day, Christian, to live this Christian life. The same power. And it's the power that we've got to have when we come together, when we come together as the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to be mindful of this every single week. Because Sunday's coming. And Wednesday for the truly spiritual is coming. <laughs> Did you catch that? Um, kidding. Um, <clears throat> but every week we are seeing each other. We're interacting with each other. So how mindful are we of what God's word says here? I need to be treating my brothers and sisters in this way. God, help me. God, give me the grace. Because what, what, what does Jesus say? John 15, 5. Without me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. But through him, Paul tells us, through Christ, we can do all things. That's a good high note to end on. Let's pray. Our holy, eternal, righteous Father. We give you thanks, Lord, for not only saving us, not only redeeming us, not only putting us right with you by the blood and righteousness of your eternal son. But Father, we thank you that, that by the work of the Spirit, through the mediation of Christ, we have been supernaturally placed into the one body of Christ where we are members one of another interdependent we're not an island to ourselves, Lord that is not how you have created us and saved us to be there is no individualism in the body of Christ and so Lord we pray that in the light of this grand truth concerning who we are as the church and, and especially concerning who we are as the local visible church of our Lord Jesus as we are here at Providence. Lord, we pray for greater grace and greater growth 
to mature with excellence in these graces of humility and meekness and patience and forbearing love. That we as a local body of Jesus Christ may in all truth by your grace and power, Lord, maintain and keep the Spirit's unity in the bond of peace. Forgive us, Holy Father, we pray by the blood and righteousness of your Son for where we have come short in maintaining this precious unity. For where we have lacked so much in treating each other with humility and meekness and patience and forbearing love. But instead we have yielded to the flesh and we have expressed sins, behavioral sins that have hurt others, that have divided, that have sown discord, that have simply made things most uncomfortable for the body of Christ. Father, have mercy on us for such sins. And we pray that in response to your word, in obedience to your word, may this be a new day, a day we start afresh in the strength of the Spirit of Christ. to preserve the Spirit's unity and the bond of peace that we do have because of our union with Jesus our Lord. We commit all of these matters into your hands for the sake and the honor of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.